morning. It's great to see all of you. Welcome to New Life Christian Church. Are you glad to be here today? Good, good. I thought I was convinced during worship, but now that you affirm it, I'm glad. I'm glad you're, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad to be here. And if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Ezra. Ezra, that's in the Old Testament. It's probably not one of those books of the Bible that you turn to very often. So if you need to look at the table of contents at the very beginning of your Bible, that's perfectly fine. I tell you all the time, it's not cheating to have to look at the table of contents. That's what it's there for. So I'm going to give you a minute to find the book of Ezra. And there are Bibles in the seat pockets around you if you'd like to do that as well and follow along. We are in a series together called Old School. And many of you know that, but if this is your first time here, let me just tell you, we are doing a series called Old School. And what we're doing is we are looking at some of these examples of people's uh, lives in the Old Testament that really just shout to what I call an old school kind of faith. You know, just, you know, nothing fancy, no bells or whistles, just straight down, I believe in God, I'm going to do what he says kind of faith. And we've been looking back in the Old Testament at these examples during a time in history known as the Babylonian captivity. And that was a season of time where the Israelites were being punished by God. He allowed the Babylonians to come into Jerusalem and conquer the Israelites. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. And they literally hauled all of these Israelites to a foreign country. And for the next 70 years, they lived there in exile. And that's where we meet Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and see some of these great examples of faith. Well, at the end of that 70 years, the king issues this decree. Any of you Jewish people that have been living here in exile who want to go home and rebuild your lives, rebuild your homeland, rebuild your temple, rebuild your city, reestablish yourself, you are welcome to go. And we learned that about 50,000 of the exiles went home. And this is where we learn about how they built the temple. And we see more great examples of this old school kind of faith. But not everybody went home. In fact, by all estimates, the majority of the Jewish people decided to stay in Persia. They had been raised there. We're now second, third, fourth generation Jews who have been born and raised there. They decided to make peace, live side by side of the Persians. They did not lose their Jewish heritage or their identity but they just decide to stay behind. And this is where we see more old school examples of great faith when we meet Esther. And I preached about her last week, how she was an orphan girl living in exile who became the queen of Persia, the most powerful country in the known world at that time. And in doing so, for such this time as this, she saved her people literally from extinction. Well, we are we have two weeks left in this series. We have today and we have next weekend, and then we're going to bring this series to a conclusion. We're going to be talking about the old school faith of Ezra today, and next week we're going to be wrapping up this series by taking a look at the faith of Nehemiah. Now, what do all these examples do? What, what do they help us with? Well, I think these examples of old school faith really do inspire us today to want that kind of faith. We want to be people who say, I want to be able to stand up for my faith like Daniel did. I, I want to stare down the nose of, of, of sin like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I, I think these great examples of faith inspire us to do that. Now, do you have the book of Ezra open? Have you found Ezra? I want you to look there, and I want you to notice that in the book of Ezra, there are 10 chapters. Do you see that? There's 10 chapters. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra, they specifically deal with the, the 50,000 Jews that when they were freed from exile, they go home to Jerusalem, and they start to rebuild their lives. They rebuild their temple and, and all of that. That's the first six chapters of Ezra. Now, at the end of Ezra chapter 6, between that and the beginning of Ezra chapter 7, 
I want you to know something. There is about 60 years of gap between those two chapters of the Bible. You can say it like this. The Israelites come home and they build their temple and it takes them about 20 years to get that all done. And then 60 years later, we meet Ezra. Now, who is Ezra? Now, who is Ezra? Ezra is a priest. He is uh, somebody that was born in captivity. In other words, he was a part of that group that did not go home with, with the 50,000. His family stayed behind in Persia, and they lived side by side with the Persian. He was raised in that environment to become a priest of God. The Bible tells us that Ezra was well-versed in the law of Moses. For our purposes today, I'm just going to refer to it like this. Ezra knew his Bible, okay? He was well-versed in the Bible. He knows it frontwards and backwards. I would even argue to say that there may not be anybody else among all the Israelites that know the Bible as well as Ezra. Ezra loves God. He loves God's people. Ezra loves God's word. And the Bible tells us that he desired to leave um, Persia and travel to Jerusalem to be the spiritual leader of the Israelites. He knew that this remnant of Jews that are rebuilding the, the promised land, if you will, is going to need uh, spiritual leadership. And so he goes to the king and he says, I want to go to Jerusalem. And the king grants him permission. Now, Ezra chapter 7, I'd like you to look there and look at verse 6. And this is how we're introduced to Ezra. Ready? He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, well-versed in the Bible which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything that he asked, for, for the hand of the Lord was on him. In other words, his desire to go to Jerusalem, it was God blessed, God was with him, and the king blessed it as well. I mean, all things are working in his favor right now. Verse 7, some of the Israelites, including the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He began his journey from Babylon, or, or the Persian government in Babylon, um, on the first day of the first month. And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to the teaching and teaching his degrees, decrees and laws in Israel." Now, this has got to be an exciting trip. I, I mean, I'm going to read into the text just a little bit, but I would imagine that Ezra was very excited about making this journey. Have you ever seen a kid in a candy store? You ever walked in with a kid into a toy store or a candy store, and they're like, oh, they're overwhelmed. I think this is a little bit of Ezra. I mean, Ezra is excited to go to Jerusalem. He has heard about this place for his whole life. He is heading to the promised land. What he has learned about in scriptures, where all of these great moments in the Bible have taken place, where God has dwelt with his people, he is going there. And he's going there to help the people of Israel live out their fullest potential for God. He's going there as a priest and a teacher. Now, it takes Ezra four months to make this journey. And I would imagine, I guess I'm, I'm guessing, I'm reading into it a little bit, the Bible doesn't say, but I'm guessing that uh, as they would travel a few miles every day and they'd have to stop and rest, I would imagine every night Ezra would maybe sit there by the campfire and he would dream about what it's going to be like when his eyes finally see the temple and what it's going to be like to worship God on the temple mount 
and what it's going to be like to walk in the places that he's read about in Scripture. And I, I would imagine as every mile they got closer to Jerusalem, the excitement be, be, began to build. And if I had to guess, it was more than what Ezra could even contain. He was so excited to get to Jerusalem. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been really excited about something only to find out it didn't work out the way you wanted I mean, have you ever anticipated or visualized or, or thought this is going to be fantastic and then when it happens, it's a letdown? Have you ever had the experience? Every hand goes up because we've all experienced things like that. A few years ago, about five, six years ago, our family planned a trip to Disney World. Have you done that one? We did a trip to Disney World. We were going to do five days with my wife's family. So it's her parents, her brother, her sister, their families. And it was a wonderful trip. But there's, we're, we planned for a year to take this trip. And for an entire year, we kept telling our, our two sons, uh, our son Neil at the time was about nine years old, we kept telling him, oh, Disney World, it's the happiest place on earth, Neil. You're gonna go, there's, there's roller coasters, Mickey Mouse, there's all these kinds of things. And, and we built this thing up for an entire year. And what Neil and my nine-year-old at the time kept talking about is, I can't wait to go on the roller coasters. I can't wait to go on the roller coasters. Our first day at Disney, we went to Epcot Center. And if you've been to Epcot Center, that's not where the roller coasters are at. And we walk into the park, and I know Neil's looking around. I mean, this kid is about to explode with excitement, and, 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 and he's not happy. And as we go a little further, and we do this, and he finds that boring, and we go over here, and we do this, and now that's boring. And I finally say, Neil, what is your problem? We're in Disney World, the happiest place on earth. And what my son says next um, lives in infamy in our family. And we remind him of this all the time. He stomps his foot. He says, I was promised roller coasters. <laughs> and there weren't any. Not that day. Ezra is coming to Jerusalem with this mentality. I'm looking forward to the roller coasters. And what he finds when he gets there, what he visualizes, what he's anticipating, and what he thinks it's going to be like, and all these people worshiping God, and how wonderful it's going to be, all of a sudden it comes crashing down because it is not that. What he found turned out to be the biggest disappointment of his life. Flip over two chapters to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra gets there. And this is what happens. After these things had, be done, had been done, the leaders came to me and they said this. The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. Like those of the Canaanites and the Hittites and Pezzarites and Jebusites and Ammonites and Moabites and Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves. And their sons and have mingled the holy race with, with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. And this right here knocks Ezra back. He can't believe it. He was expecting roller coasters. And what he finds is a nation ravaged by sin. See, see what had happened when those 50,000 Jews had gone home to rebuild their lives and they rebuilt the temple and now all these years have passed, their children and their grandchildren 
did not live up to what God wanted. And they had started to fall back into the old ways that got the Israelites in trouble in, to begin with. Do you remember what was the specific sin that they got in trouble with here? They had intermarried themselves with these pagan nations, these godless nations around them. And for God, that is a huge no-no. This is a rule that God had established hundreds of years before when he had rescued the Israelites out of slavery. In the very beginning days of the existence of the Israelites, God said, there's this one thing I don't want you to do. I do not want you to involve yourself and intermarry with these pagan nations. And I'll show you where he gives the command. You don't have to turn there, but it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And again, this is going back to the beginning days. The Israelites come across the, the Red Sea on dry ground. You remember God's great deliverance of them. They spend 40 years in the wilderness, and they are about now to be given the promised land. And God tells them this, Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Pezzites, Hivites, Jebusites, all these nations larger than you, when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, show them no mercy. Now look at verse 3. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me and serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their asher poles, burn their idols with fire. For you are a people holy unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. You know, I find it interesting to read this passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy 7 and Ezra chapter 9, and we read language like, do not intermix, do not mix your race, do not mix the holy people of God. Isn't it interesting to read these things in light of what's going on in the world today? And I wonder, does it change the way you read scripture because of what we're going through in the world today does it cause you some pause you see there are some who would read this today and they would just pick up Deuteronomy and they'd read it without any context whatsoever and they'd read words like mixing and intermarrying in the holy race and and they would take the unrest of today and they would read this and they would say look God is a racist Right here in the Word of God, it says God is, is a bigot. And I'm telling you right now, I don't want anything to do with a God who's a racist. Have you ever encountered anybody that drew that conclusion? I have. Have you? Friends, I want you to know something. Nothing, and I mean nothing, could be further from the truth. This is... Another example out of thousands in the Bible where context is vital. Context. You see, because what the context 
of this passage is. And what is God doing? Is we discover that God has a master plan of saving the world by raising up a nation of people that would do what? They would model holiness to the world. That's who the Israelites were intended to be. The Israelites would be an example to the rest of the world of what holiness looks like and what it looks like for a people to have a God and for those people to obey their God and they would be the model of God's vision for the people of the world and people would be so envious of what the Israelites have that they would want that too and they would humble themselves and want the Lord. These are the people that would bring us the Messiah. Jesus Christ, who will, who will individually save the whole world, regardless of your race or your skin tone or your language or where you're from or what your background is or any of those things. This is the people that would bring the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to existence. And the last thing that God wanted ever was for the influences of these pagan nations who hated God and they lived for themselves to have influence on what God was doing. The last thing God wanted was for these pagan nations to drive a wedge in between him and the Israelites. He didn't want there to be debauchery and disobedience and idol worship introduced into what was supposed to be the model of, of an existence between God and his people. And so God, when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and he established some guidelines for the Israelites, he's like, here are some rules, here are some commands about how I want you to interact with me and how I'm going to interact with you. And here are some rules about how I want you to behave in regard to your fellow man and with your family. And these are the rules that we're going to live by and we're going to be one big happy family and we're going to show the world what it looks like to be holy and sanctified. And in that, God told them this. I don't want you to intermarry with pagan nations. I don't want you to give your daughters to their families. I don't want you to take their sons into your families. And then he even tells us why that is. He says in verse 4 of chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, because they're going to turn your children away from me and away to serve other gods. Friends, as a parent, and we've all been there, if you are, if you forbid your son or daughter from hanging out with a certain group of friends, if you forbid them from going to certain places, if you stop them from, from, from going to certain parties and things like that, you do that because you, as the parent, know that those friends, this environment, that party, has the potential to derail what you have taught them their whole life and take them down a different path. Can I tell you what that isn't? That is not racism. That's called good parenting. Why did God the Father not want the Israelites, his children, to intermarry with godless people? I can promise you it was not racism. It's called our Heavenly Father being a good father. He knew that his children would be turned away from their father. They would be turned away from their family. And they would serve other gods. And God's like, that's not happening in my family. So for anybody to read the Old Testament and somehow walk away from that thinking that God was a racist it means that they have reimagined and they have reinterpreted the Bible to fit whatever preconceived notion about God they already had before they ever picked up the Bible to read it. 
So sadly, this is exactly what is happening in many churches today. And I've tried to be somebody who sounds the alarm to you, the church, of the dangers of progressive Christianity. This is what's happening. This is what progressive Christians do. This is what the false teachers in these progressive churches are all about. They approach the Bible first with a skewed point of view. It's a skewed point of view that has been skewed by the sin and worldliness of the world we live in. And they have a preconceived idea or how they want to believe and think about something. And ironically, most of the time, it lines up perfectly with the majority of culture. And then they come to the Bible and then they reimagine what the text says. They reinterpret it or they re-explain the Bible to mean something that it doesn't mean at all. Friends, these are dangerous times. And you need to be on guard. Come, coming back to Ezra, he learns that the Israelites had not been faithful in one of God's most basic, straightforward commands. They had intermarried with these godless pagan nations that were around them. Um, not only had um, the men married foreign wives, but they had also started families with these wives, and they have given those children over to other families from other nations and have completely mingled themselves, and this is the biggest letdown of Ezra's life. Ezra was expecting roller coasters, and he found a nation full of sin. Here's what happens to Ezra because of this. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. When I heard this, the text switches to first person here. This is Ezra talking. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until evening sacrifice. That's quite a reaction. Th that is... That is an incredible reaction to the sins of a nation. And what we see Ezra doing is he is carrying in himself in a physical and a visible way the, the magnitude of their sin. The, the magnitude of the sin of the people has caused this physical reaction to take place in Ezra. What does he do? He rips his clothes. He tears his tunic. Of course, and I've pointed this out other times, even in this series, like last week with Mordecai, when he heard that a law had been passed that, that the, the Jews would be exterminated, he rips his clothes. You remember that? Ezra does, he tears his clothes. This is, this is a sign of great grief, anger, remorse. All of the things wrapped up. It's like, ah. And then, you know what he does? He starts to rip his hair out, and he starts to rip his beard out. 50% of that I can relate to. You know, it's like, <laughs> he starts to, Starts to do this, and, and I want you to understand, it's not like he got out some scissors. like No, he is angry. He's like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. He is having a visual reaction, an emotional reaction to the sins of the people. And then, and then he sits down all day. Like, so he's got his, tor his clothes are torn, pieces of hair and beard are on the ground, and he's sitting in it. Can I ask you a question? Can you ha handle a heavy question? When was the last time, if ever, you had a visible or a physical reaction to sinful behavior? 
or has, has sinful behavior in others or what you see happening in our land, has it ever made you ill? Have you ever been sick to your stomach? Have you ever had that, I'm going to throw up kind of feeling? Can I ask you another question? Is it, is it possible that we as Christians today have become so callous towards sin or perhaps so um, desensitized to sin that if we're being honest, it doesn't even bother us anymore. Our world is sin. Our world is full of sin. Have we become numb to it? Have we become numb to the very thing that separates man from God? Have we become numb to the very thing that Jesus gave his life to free us from? Has sin become so commonplace in our land? Has it become so commonplace in our purview that its shock no longer has any sting left in it? Like take, for example, when we see the, the sin of pride, whether we see it in ourselves or we see it out in our community or in our land, does it, does it hurt us? Or do we dismiss it as, well, that's just courage? Or we take the sin of greed, whether we see it in our own life or we see it in our world or our government or whatever, do, do, does that hurt us? Are we like, that's so wrong? Or, or is it like, yeah, it's just the way the world works. Got to do what you got to do. Got to get ahead. We look at this, the sins involved with sexual immorality. Like, like the sin of adultery. Or the sin of premarital sex. Or the sin of homosexuality. Or the sin of pornography. Or the sin of, you name it, any kind of perversion you can think of. Does that stop us in our tracks when we're exposed to allusions to it or visions of it? Or is it just, eh, it's just our world. It's what everybody does. Take any other sin. Lying, cheating, stealing, I mean, you name it. Taking the Lord's name in vain. Why are we not appalled to these things anymore? Where, where is our utter heartbreak over lost people. See, when I think about old school faith and, and how I think that it manifests itself in somebody's life, how do you know if you're somebody with old school faith? I think somebody with old school faith, they are absolutely appalled by sin. Like Ezra, appalled by it. Appalled by it. Like sick and disgusted, outraged, horrified, shocked, dismayed when we are exposed to examples of it or find it creeping into our own lives. You see, Ezra, as you look at what he's upset about, he's not upset that these pagan nations had intermarried with the Israelites. No, 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 not at all. He's upset that the Israelites had intermarried with them. And there is a huge difference between those two things. The Israelites should have known better. They had every reason not to engage in this kind of sinful activity, but they still did it anyway. I look at it this way. The world is a sinful place, and I don't think any of us in here could deny that. But the church shouldn't be. There are behaviors 
There is a mentality that is shared by the world, but it should not be shared within the church of Jesus. In other words, you have the people of God, Christians, us, who we should be setting the example to the rest of the world of what godliness and holiness is like, not engaging in it with the world. And in that sense right there, we are no different than the Israelites of the the old. Our light, God's intention for Christians, the church, is to let our light shine bright in this dark world. And the brighter that our light shines in this world, then the, the more appalled we should become when that light reveals the darkness that actually exists in this world. That's how it's supposed to work. In that sense, we're no different than the Israelites, God's chosen people, bound together by our faith. And God still, in every way that he desired for the Israelites, wants the church to be that model of the people of God, that we are his people and he is our God and we live for him. Bound together by our faith in Jesus, we we are supposed to be holy, separate, and different. So Ezra is in a very bad way. He's feeling the weight of Israel's sin, and then this happens. Look at verse 5. Here's what happens next. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I too am ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you what Ezra's feeling? He's feeling the weight of all the sins of the people of Israel. And let me tell you something about ourselves. When we too are crushed by the weight of sin... You know, when, when we are crushed by the weight of the sin we see in the world or we're crushed by the weight of our own sin, then you are starting to get down in the right position to pray about it. What did Ezra do? He tries to rise up, but he goes straight to his knees and, and he spreads his arms out like this and, and, and he takes on what is the humblest of positions that you can take on as a human. He's down with his face before God. He's feeling the weight of the sins of Israel And friends, I'm just going to tell you, when you are being crushed by the weight of your sin, then you're in a position to pray. And that's what Ezra's feeling. He falls down before God. And I wonder, it makes me wonder, how many of us in this room today are close to that position right now? Only you would know, but you are being crushed by the weight of your very sin. And you're close to this position. It's becoming too heavy to carry, and you feel it more and more every day. And it's hard to carry because you're not supposed to carry it. I think maybe, maybe the Lord wants you to know that maybe right now for you, it's time for you to stay down. It's time for you to pray. And it's time for you to seek the Lord and to pray like Ezra is about to pray. Look at verse 6. Let's read this prayer. And I prayed, I I prayed that I am too ashamed to disgrace my God. 
to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens from the days of our ancestors until now. Our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we, are, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of God and repair its ruins. And he's given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. This prayer starts out saying this, basically, God... You have been so good to us. We have not deserved it. Even when we rebelled, you still spared us. That's his prayer so far. And then you look at verse 10. But now, you can even feel it in his prayer, but now something has changed. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken in commands. You gave through your servants the prophets when you said, The land you are eating possesses a land polluted by the corruption of its people. He is starting to confess the wrongdoing of the people of God. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for their sons. Do not seek a treaty or friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. He's praying, God, we have messed this thing up royally. Verse 13, what has happened to us is the result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God... You have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. Well, I could say a lot about this prayer but let me just say this it's a humble prayer prayed by a man who's feeling the weight of the sins of his people and he's falling down before his maker and it shows us Ezra and old school faith people are appalled by sin but you know what else they are they are also humble before God old school faith represents itself in humility before God and I would say somebody with an old school faith, they understand the weight and the damage of sin when they see it in the world and when they see it in their own life and they humble themselves before God. Friends, I live with this concern and perhaps you live with the same concern that at the end of the day, the church, the people of God today, are they really all that different than the world? That burdens me. Like the way we think and the way we behave and the things that we allow to come out of our mouths and the way that we interact with others and the things that we allow our eyes to see and the things that we do with our bodies and how we prioritize our time and what we get excited about and what we get sad about, what makes us happy, what makes us sad. If we did a side-by-side -side comparison of those things, 
with non-believers, would we look any different? Would there be any distinguishable difference? And that right there is why Ezra is so broken. The Israelites were supposed to be different. The people of God. And he comes and he finds them no different than all the pagan nations around them. But let me just tell you, this is heavy, but it doesn't end sad. Ezra, the priest of these people, is not going to lead these people any further in in this direction. He's going to help them change course. And this is the really good, exciting news. Jump over to chapter 10. Here's what happens next. It says in verse 1, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I mean, this is, I said there's a visual reaction to sin. Not only that, there's a visual reaction to his prayer. He is weeping, he's crying, he is throwing himself down. I don't know if I've ever prayed a prayer quite like this, but it drew a crowd. And people started to gather around Ezra wondering, what is going on? It says he kept weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. A large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. And look what happens. They too wept bitterly. Then Shekaniah, son of Jehel, one of the ascendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope in Israel. Let's do this. Let's make a covenant before God and let's send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. And this, my friends, is an unexpected development for Ezra for sure. Ezra, perhaps right now, is feeling like he is the only one who is burdened by this great sin. He's the only one that's fallen under conviction. But no, he's not. No, he's not. This humble prayer, this act of humility has gathered more, and then more will come. And I'll let you read the rest of chapter 10. But eventually, eventually, the nation of Israel awakens themselves to their sin and their guilt. And they're like, what do we got to do to fix this? What do we got to do to keep from repeating this? And what we see next is a whole nation rallying around this idea, we've got to get right with God and we can never do this again. And I see another aspect of old school faith. Not only are people with old school faith appalled by sin, not only do we react humbly before God when it creeps into our lives or we see it around us, but we actually take steps, just like the Israelites are about to do. They take steps to not repeat their sin moving forward. Remember, this guy said something very interesting. He said, Ezra, there is still hope. There's still hope. And, and this, would, this, this and, and hundreds of other pastors of the Bible all bring me back to the same conclusion. It's a truth that is weighed through texts like this and through others in the Bible. God really does care more about where you're going than where you've been. Not all hope is lost. I think we can fix this. And friends, I'm telling you, the same is true. You may be so buried in sin, you don't even know how to pray. And you don't even know what God wants from you. Or what you could do to fix this. Or how to resolve the guilt you feel in your life. But I'm here to tell you, perhaps even as God's messenger to you directly today, you're not lost forever. 
God has not given up on you. He cares more about where you're going than where you've been. But you've got to be appalled by your sin. And you've got to be humble in repentance before God. And you've got to make a change. And that's what we see the Israelites doing. Here's, here's what eventually happens. It takes them doing. This is a large country now. But they send all of their wives away. This is a huge thing. Imagine if you were engaged in this activity and you married a woman from, or from another country and you had children with her. And then to get right with God and to purge the nation and make it holy once again, you had to send your family away forever. You know, sometimes following Christ is a series of drastic measures that do not make sense to the world. I'm thankful that we don't live in a season any longer where you have to send your family away to be right with God. But we do live in a time where it's just as serious and the consequences of sinful behavior are just as serious. Now, this action where they send their wives away, they were doing this according to the Lord's leading and the governance of the law, which that tells me this, that the Lord provided and the nation of Israel provided for these families. So they sent them back to their own families in their other countries, and I am confident from what I just read that there were provisions made. It's not like, eh, see ya. No, no, they provided for their family the rest of their lives, but they had to separate. Well, it's interesting. Um, as you read the rest of chapter 10, it wasn't like they just said, all right, all you foreign wives, get out of here. They actually took an inventory of their country, and they identified every single person by name who had done this sin. You know, I always thought it'd be really cool that if we lived in Bible times, that to have your name recorded in Scripture for all eternity till Jesus comes back. That's not how you want your name recorded in the Bible because at the end of chapter 10, it lists every family, it lists every individual who had involved themselves in this sin by name. And you know what we discover when you do the math and you add them all up? There were 113 cases where men of Israel had taken foreign wives and had children with them. And that, does that shock you? Because maybe you, oh, 113, that's it? Of all the nation of Israel, the whole country, all, all this fuss over 113? Ezra tore out his beard over 113? Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples one day when he was warning them about the Pharisees? He said, guys, be on guard against the, do you remember the word? The yeast of the Pharisees. I, I don't bake much. I'm sure that's a shocker to you. But I know that a little bit of yeast affects the whole batch of dough. We may read this and go, there's, there's, there's probably several hundred thousand Israelites, and you're talking about 113 cases? Friends, this is a great example. It doesn't take much to steer the whole nation away. Especially when you realize that 25% of that 113, one-fourth of that 113 were, were uh, 
priests and Levites. Let me put some language on that for you. They were the preachers. Now think about that. One-fourth of all those that had engaged in this direct violation of God's command were clergy. So yeah, 113 times is enough to steer the whole nation away from God and speaks to the seriousness of sin. Friends, I come back to this. What I want for my life and what I hope you want for your life is nothing more than just a basic, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring faith. If God calls it this, that's what I'm going to call it. If God wants me to go here, that's where I'm going to go there. I just want to be obedient to my Heavenly Father, and that is old-school faith. And I want to be, and I hope you want to be, somebody who will always be appalled by sin. When it creeps up in our lives or in the lives of our world, we see it all the time, that, that we remain humble before God. And then we take steps. Sometimes we may have to take drastic steps to not repeat the sins in our life. And friends, that right there, that's some old school faith. And I'll leave you with this. It's an Old Testament passage that I feel that if it was obeyed today would change the world. It's 2 Chronicles 7.14. And it just says this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear, heal their land. May that be true of us. Let me pray for you. Dear Lord, I just thank you as always for your scriptures. And Lord, how they teach and guide and shape. And even when, even when it challenges us deeply. Lord, my prayer for our church family would be this. That, that the new life family would be a holy family. That Lord, the new life family and those who make up New Life Christian Church that, Lord, we would be appalled by sin. And we would be really appalled when it finds its way into our lives. But, Lord, when it does, we take great hope and measure in knowing that you are a God who saves and you are a God who forgives. And we can repent because not all hope is lost. And we can take steps not sin anymore and we can stand with you again in holiness and purity bathing in your grace because you do care more about where we're going than where we've been so Lord I thank you for all that you've done I thank you Lord for all that you want to do and our prayer would be Lord that you would exercise your master plan through New Life Christian Church. And may we welcome the challenge and be the kind of people that you would one day say, well done, all of my good and faithful servants. In Jesus' name.